Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. How we doing? Nirvana is a culturally confusing and freighted term. It's the name of the best rock band of the 1990s, in my opinion. It's the name of smoothie joints and yoga studios. There's a vape place near me called Nirvana. There's a car buying and selling website called Carvana. So it's been fully co-opted and sometimes corrupted by the culture. And yet, Nirvana is also the clearly stated goal of the Buddha's teaching. So what does it mean, actually? Making matters even more complex, there's a kind of omerta or code of silence about nirvana in some corners of the Buddhist world where teachers might reference nirvana sometimes, but often won't talk about whether they've experienced it personally. So we're going to dive into the deep end today, going for a a little bit of exotica and esoterica with my main man, Joseph Goldstein, an incredible meditation teacher who is, in fact, willing to talk about his experience with nirvana. And he also does an incredibly good job of explaining the concept and making it practical. Should we all be striving for nirvana? How not to try too hard? Is it attainable for a normal person? What does all of this have to do with our everyday lives anyway? And what practices can we do right now that might give us a tiny glimpse? We cover all of that in what is an experimental episode for us, not only because the topic is unusual, but also because this is our first podcast recording of a live show at the Armory in Boston in front of a sold-out crowd who did not know in advance that Joseph would be the guest. They kind of freaked out. Uh, We would love your feedback on this because if it works and you like it, we will do more of this. A little bit more about Joseph before we dive in. He is a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, an amazing place where I go on retreat once or twice a year. He's the author of several books, including Mindfulness, One Dharma, and The Experience of Insight. I recommend all of them. And he has been on this show too many times to count. Joseph Goldstein coming up after we pay some bills. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs 
And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I think the only reason we could sell tickets for an event like this is people want to see if I'm going to have another panic attack, which uh, I can arrange for you. Did I do coke tonight? No, I did not. You holding? I have no idea what I'm going to fucking say. Uh, this is a total experiment. We've never done this before. Uh, thank you very much, genuinely, for coming out tonight. I really, really appreciate that. I'm not just saying it. I really mean it. It's so gratifying to see that we can run an experiment like this and people actually come. And I know that I promised you a special guest. And I have a very special guest. I, I guess people sitting on this side of the room might have already been able to figure out who it is because you can see backstage. But I do want to welcome to the stage a guy some of you may have heard of. His name is Joseph Goldstein. Just in case you haven't heard of Joseph Goldstein, Joseph has been teaching meditation for doing meditation for 50 some odd years? 130. 130? <laughs> you can date it back to the Mesozoic era. Anything else I should say before we dive in? No, I think that's... We were discussing over dinner the fact that my favorite words are, you're right, or good job. So I'm going to take that as that. Um, Joseph Goldstein, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> All right, let's talk about nirvana. You actually don't use the word nirvana. You say nibbana. Why is that? So as you mentioned, it's, there are two ancient Indian languages, uh, Pali and Sanskrit. And Pali is kind of the vernacular language, and Sanskrit was the more literary language. A lot of the Buddhist terminology was really spoken of in Sanskrit, and those are the words we're most familiar with, like dharma and karma and nirvana. The Pali is very similar, but slightly different. And the reason I like the term nibbana rather than nirvana means the same thing, is because as all of you know, nirvana has kind of been co-opted in the popular culture, all the way from rock bands to restaurants, and I think my favorite is banana smoothies. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because it does point, I mean, even in that usage of it, it does have the glimmer of a suggestion that it points to something the best of, you know, when we use that term. But by using the term nibbana, the Pali word for it, I think it's easier to really focus on its spiritual aspect. And as you said, the goal of the Buddhist teachings so it kind of strips away the more popular cultural 
connotations. So that's why I like to use the, the poly term. I want to talk a lot about what it is. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Before I do that, though, let me ask, why is it that it's not talked about that much? I go on lots of meditation retreats, and it, it's quite rare to hear a teacher talking about nirvana or nibbana. And I sometimes joke, it's like there's a kind of omerta around it. So what's that all about? Well, it's talked about a lot in Asia. I was practicing a lot in India and Burma. So it's referenced a lot. When we came back to the States and began teaching, this was around 1974, there was very little context for it. Mindfulness and meditation was really quite exotic. And people asked me what I did. Oh, I teach meditation. Dead silence. (laughs) It, It just wasn't part of our culture. So in the Asian Buddhist cultures, there's a whole context that people grow up with in understanding it as the goal of practice. Here, because there was so little understanding or experience or connection to any aspect of the Buddhist teaching, it was all quite exotic. It felt like it was important to really start talking about the practice in ways that people could relate to in their own experience now. Over the years, of course, people have come to a depth of practice. And as we all know, mindfulness has become a big industry. It's really in the culture now. But it may be that we've just carried over that habit. But I know for myself in teaching and some other teachers, we are beginning to talk about it more because it feels like people can now really relate to it in one way or another. And we can talk you know, about that this evening from their experience. And so it feels like now maybe it's the right time. So this evening is kind of an experiment. And afterwards you can let us know, <laughs> did this work? <laughs> maybe, part- maybe we go back to banana smoothies. <laughs> <laughs> is part of the issue that if you start tossing around these big concepts that type A meditators will get wrapped around the axle trying to achieve it? Yes, and I think that that is definitely a a potential hazard in talking about it. And it came up a lot even when we first came back to this country to start teaching. This was in 74. So in those years, uh, we weren't using the term nirvana, but a lot of people, just the thought or the idea of enlightenment was in the air. And so people would come and enlightenment or bust. And there was not much interest or even teachings about some of the basics like ethical behavior. I want to get enlightened and morality, even even the term morality, the connotation can be moralistic or something that misses the point of it. But people were shying away. They weren't so interested in that. They were interested in enlightenment. So my first teacher, Manindraji, he had a very good assessment of this situation. He said, people who want to get enlightened without the foundation of ethics, without the foundation of non-harming in behavior, is like somebody in a boat wanting to cross the river and not untying the boat from the dock. And then no matter how much effort you make, you're not going anyplace. 
And so he was really emphasizing how important the foundation of ethics and morality and non-harming is to the realization of enlightenment or awakening. So there was a whole learning of how to present the whole path towards it in a way that built upon, each step building upon the next. So there is that danger of people getting so excited by the possibility of really an idea and then not laying the foundation. Right. I can't count how many times I've come to you in the middle of meditation retreats and complained about my lack of progress or bragged about um, illusory progress or whatever it is. And I think that in and of itself... And how did I respond? (laughs) uh, You might have sprained your eyes from rolling them. (laughs) Well, I remember one time coming to you and saying, you know, I, I... I'm working so hard, why is nothing happening? And you, you said, yeah, let me reframe this whole thing for you. This is, this is a long road. And every time I go on retreat, I tell myself, I'm not going to fall into that trap, and it never works. And so I think that is one of the potential risks of talking too frankly about Nibbana or Nirvana or wherever you want to call it, because even if I'm willing to, to be moral, uh, which is debatable. Um, it's it's the the striving that is in and of itself a hindrance. I sometimes say that meditation is this crazy video game where if you want to move forward, you can't move forward. You have to like put your mind into a neutral position in order to achieve progress, and that is so hard for a, a modern uh, strivey, striving oriented person to to grok. Yeah, I think there's a distinction of two different mind states that when we understand it can really help us hold enlightenment or awakening or nirvana, nibbana as a goal without getting caught by striving. Mm. And the distinction, uh, which I found helpful, is understanding the difference between aspiration and expectation. So an aspiration And even just as you hear those words, just get a sense of the different feeling you might have in reflecting on what they mean. Because an aspiration sets a direction. We can have something that we value and that we're aiming for. So it sets the direction for our path, for our work. Expectation has to do with wanting something to happen now and then being frustrated when it's not going the way we want. Because as you know and anybody, all of you who have done any kind of practice at all or really practice in anything, it could be music, it could be sports, it could be scholastic stuff, growth in any discipline never goes like that. It's always up and down and up and down, but the slope of the curve is going up. So if our aspiration is clear, it's setting us in the right direction. And then if we can let go of expectation, and one way of doing them, we were just talking about this in the green room before, <laughs> before coming out. One of the things my first teacher, Manindraji, said, <clears throat> which has helped me so much in my practice in just this regard, he said, on the spiritual path, time is not a factor. But we tend to measure things in how long is it going to take? Or how am I doing this week or this month? 
you know, and we drive ourselves crazy with that kind of expectation. So when we realize, no, time's not a factor. We have the aspiration. We know what direction we're going in, which actually gives a lot of meaning to our lives. When there is a sense of a path going someplace, but then settling back into the moment and letting it unfold. One more thing. I've learned. Um, <laughs> sometimes to be Joseph, patient. <laughs> it's you know that wheel of doom when you're on a computer and uh, it's buffering. I can see that happen in his face. <laughs> Just let it play out. Something good will come. The file has downloaded. <laughs> And each year it downloads a little slower. <laughs> <laughs> He's a kid. <laughs> so there was a book that came out. It was very popular. Maybe it was in the 60s or 70s, uh, called Mount Analog. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. It's by a French author, René Domal. And basically it's a story... He uses the metaphor of a mountain uh, as a metaphor for the spiritual journey, the spiritual path, climbing the mountain. And he says, there's one section, and I wish I could quote it exactly, but this is a paraphrase. He said, when you're climbing a mountain, you have to be looking at your step right in front of you, or you're going to trip over rocks or obstacles. So you have to pay attention to what's right in front of you. Because the last step depends on the first. But then he said, but you also want to have a vision of the top or an understanding of the destination, because that's what inspires you to take the next step we have a sense, oh yeah, this is going someplace. This is going to a place that I value. So in that respect, he said, both the last step depends on the first, but the first step depends on the last. And I think it's really a beautiful way of expressing that we need both. We need to be really grounded where we are, but also to have that sense of that vision, that aspiration of where it's leading, of where it's going, because that's what inspires us to keep taking the next steps. Okay, so let's talk about where it's going, allegedly. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> nirvana, I, I made a, some notes here. Nibbana or Nirvana has been described variously as the unborn, the unmade, the unconditioned, the unformed, the uncreated, the unafflicted. Also, the highest peace, the deathless, an island, a shelter, a harbor, a refuge. What does that, what does any of that mean? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd just like to use first a very ordinary image that that may give you just a, a flavor of what it's about to begin with. So probably you've all had the experience sometimes of sitting in your kitchen or dining room and you're not noticing anything, any particular sounds going on, but then at a certain point, the hum of the refrigerator stops. Have you had that experience? And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like there's a 
kind of dropping into a peacefulness that we didn't even know was being disturbed by the hum <laughs> because the hum was just so much a part of the ambience of our home. But then when it stops, oh, you know, kind of energetically, you can feel the stillness. So Nibbana really refers to two things. One of them is, if you think of this whole mind-body process, you know, all the sensations we feel in the body and all of the mental stuff that goes on, the thoughts and emotions, as the refrigerator hum. Mm. And we're just living. In fact, we, we can almost say we are that hum. Right? This, this is our life, is the hum. The experience of Nibbana, one, one meaning of it, and I'll talk about the other one. One meaning of it is through the meditative process, and sometimes it could be very spontaneous, but more often it's the result of a long dedicated practice. At a certain point in the practice, it's like the hum of the mind-body process stops. And there's an experience of, we could call it the ultimate silence or the highest peace. Or, but it's a very similar or, or analogous. It, it, it's analogous to the noise of the hum stopping. And then there's that enjoyment of the silence and the peace of it. And the contrast is so obvious at that point. And so in meditation... We're feeling and we're, we're more and more in, uh, in a very refined way and almost a microscopic way, <clears throat> the energetics of our mind-body system. And it's just, it's ongoing, ongoing, ongoing from birth to death and in the Buddhist understanding even beyond. So when that stops, it's like there's that release, relief, peace. And one of the phrases one finds in the Buddhist teachings is a really simple statement, which is not a very American value, but it says the highest happiness is peace. I wonder if we just went out on the streets and, and asked people, you know, what would make you most happy? I wonder how often peace <laughs> would emerge as the leading cause of it. But through our practice, we really begin to appreciate the depth of meaning of that statement. So that's one meaning of Nibbana. Just the stillness when the hum of this whole mind-body energy system, even for a few moments... There's a cessation of that into this reality of Nibbana, which is peace. So that's one meaning. There's another meaning, which I think is actually somewhat more accessible to us, perhaps both conceptually, but also experientially. So another definition of Nibbana, which the Buddha said very explicitly, it's, it's right in the text, where he says, Nibbana is 
the cessation of greed and hatred and delusion. So he's talking then about the quality of our mind and our heart as the result of experiencing that highest peace. It purifies the mind. It uproots from the mind those tendencies of greed and hatred and delusion. And, you know, it's really interesting when we look out and, I don't know, especially in these times, it seems to me, but maybe it's been forever, you know, of all the incredible challenges that are present now in the world on so many different levels. But so many of them, when we look underneath to the causes behind the problems, they're mostly rooted in greed and hatred and fear and ignorance. And so I think we could get a sense of the beauty of a mind that has actually weakened these defilements and at a certain point uprooted them. So that's another meaning of Nibbana, the mind free, the mind heart free of those forces which cause so much suffering in the world and for ourselves. So so are you saying that in the experience of Nibbana or Nirvana, greed, hatred, and delusion is not present in that moment? And what about subsequently? Do they all come rushing back once, you know, once you're done? Right. So, again, different Buddhist traditions will lay out the map somewhat differently, but there's an overall agreement. Some of the details of the map may differ. But in the tradition that, you know, I'm most experienced in, it's said that enlightenment or awakening goes in stages. And there are four stages. And the first of them is called entering the stream to awakening. So it's like a very deep transformation. And once one has entered the stream, it's said that full awakening is inevitable. We're carried by the current. At each of these four stages, different of the defilements are either uprooted so they don't come again, or in one of the stages, some are attenuated. So even though they may come again, they come again in a much weaker form. But the goal is actually to uproot these forces in the mind. They're just, I say just, but (laughs) they're deeply conditioned habit patterns of mind, you know, of craving and wanting and desire and aversion and fear and restlessness. And so all of these things that we're so familiar with, they're deeply conditioned which is why it takes practice. (laughs) It really takes a training of our minds. But I first got into... I'm going to digress a little. You're going to answer questions I didn't ask? Is that what's going to happen? (laughs) I know you came to see him because you didn't even know I was coming. (laughs) I think in legal circles, they call that a bait and switch. (laughs) Uh, so I'll, I'll be brief. 
So I first got into meditation when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. I finished college, uh, studied philosophy, went to Thailand, and there were discussion groups um, for Westerners. Some Buddhist monks were leading these discussion groups for those Westerners who were interested. Having studied philosophy at school, I went to these groups and asked so many questions. The poor monks. And people actually stopped coming because this obnoxious person was there who just wouldn't shut up. So finally one of the monks said, I think you should try meditating. I mean, I was young. I was just 21 years old. You know, I, it, it was all super exotic to me. Here I was in the Far East, Buddhism. You know, it was just like, whoa, meditation, great. You know, was, I didn't know anything about it. So he gave me just the most basic instructions. I get my paraphernalia together. Set my alarm clock for five minutes. So I didn't want to sit too long. But this is, this is the point to the whole story. Something quite amazing happened in that first five minutes. And it was not Nibbana, and it was not enlightenment or awakening. But what happened in that first five minutes was that I saw there was a way to look into the mind as well as looking out through it. So it was just like a turning in place. And that there was a methodology for doing it. And I just found that revelatory. You know, that as many young people are at that age, you know, there was a lot of angst about my life and what I was going to do and all kinds of turmoil. So t to find a way that one could actually look inside, into the heart, into the mind systematically, was just so so amazing to me. It was so amazing. And I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> I was so excited by it. And I'm still doing it. <laughs> so thank you for coming. And <laughs> we'll now sit for an hour and a half. <laughs> Forgot we were supposed to meditate at the start of yeah, this. We I got so excited I overlooked that. Uh, too much cocaine. <laughs> so the fact that there's a way, that there's a path, and the path actually leads somewhere, and that we can discover things about ourselves all along the way, I just think is remarkable. Yeah. But you did, pretty early in your meditative career, have an experience of Nibbana. Can you tell us about it? This was really quite unusual, and I don't know all the circumstances that led to it. Who knows? Maybe you know, something from past lives came into play. But anyway, right toward the end of my Peace Corps stay, this was after two years, I was sitting in the garden of a friend of mine who was also interested in meditation and Buddhism, and he was reading to me from a very powerful Tibetan text. It turns out it was a very poor translation of the text, which I didn't find out till later, but it didn't really matter in that instance. 
And the Tibetan text in that edition, it was called the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. So he's reading the text, and a lot of the text would give various teachings, and then one of the refrains was, and look within at your own mind. Look within at your own mind. And then it would use a lot of the terms you listed describing Nibbana, the unborn, the uncreated, the unformed, the unconstructed. So we'd be repeating those words and then look within at your own mind. And for whatever reason, my mind just became really still and concentrated and alert. It kind of just found a perfect balance in the listening to this. And just at a certain point, as my friend was reading, and he read the word unborn. Something happened. It was somehow the meaning of that word got actualized. And just as a little experiment, unborn. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't really going to do that. I was going to suggest. I was going to suggest... It might be interesting, in a more conceptual way, just to reflect on what that word means. What is the reality of something unborn? So anyway, I heard that word. My mind was in this really quiet, balanced place, unborn. And it was like the stopping of the hum. And the the metaphor, really, that came to my mind just afterwards was, it was like the experience of zero. Something non-manifest, but its own reality. And years later, back when I'm back in the States and teaching for quite a while, I came across a book. The title of the book was the nothing that is. And it turns out it was a book about the history of the number zero. Now, zero is a very powerful number. And the opening lines of the book just completely resonated with me. It said, you look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. And so zero, both as a concept and the reality of it in the world and in mathematics, it's a tremendously powerful number. And yet, it's nothing. And so it was the experience of zero. And the result of that, the result of that experience was the realization or the understanding that the center of our being is zero, is not a self. And of course, this understanding of selflessness or non-self is just 
fundamental aspect of the Buddhist teachings about awakening. You know? So it really uprooted that belief that there's a self-center because after the experience of zero-center, so that, was, that self-center, the view of it or the belief in it was really gone. I then fell into a trap, which is very common and unfortunately we can see play, playing out a lot in spiritual scenes. So for a, while, for a couple of days, I was just in a completely altered state. But the thought of my, oh, well, I'm done. Yeah. You know, I, okay, <laughs> great. But then I, I was in Bangkok, that's where I was teaching. And just soon after, I was walking down, I don't know, one of the back streets in Bangkok, and it was dark, and I began to feel a little fear and anxiety about being on that stark street, and fear, anxiety. I guess I'm not done. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a great lesson in understanding that, yes, we can have these really powerful, transformative moments, and yet they're still... In a way, it's the beginning, not the end. There's so much more to do. And yet, you know, when we read of all these situations where sometimes even quite accomplished teachers get into trouble, because I think it's very possible for people to have a genuine realization, but it be misinterpreted as being, okay, now I'm done, and so whatever I do is an expression of the enlightened mind and not realizing, no, that the realization may have been genuine, but misinterpreted in terms of completion. So I think it's really helpful to have a context for understanding all this. This is a bit of a digression, but I love watching these true crime stories about cult leaders and all the bad things they do, but... One of the wrinkles, I think that's one of the nuances that I think is very often, if not always overlooked, is that some of these people, some of these guys, and they're mostly guys, actually do have a lot to teach and they have wisdom to share. But the the trap they've fallen into is thinking that they're done and uh, and that they're not capable of bad behavior anymore. yes. Coming up, Joseph Goldstein talks about his first time experiencing nirvana or nibbana and what is actually meant by the notion of the self being an illusion. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings 
on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and while meditation is good for your mental health, it can also be challenging. But the 10% Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. How long did that experience of zero or nirvana, nibbana last for you? Was it a, was it zap? The actual moment was just, it was just a moment. It was like a lightning bolt. But the effect in, in, as I was mentioning earlier, kind of the uprooting of certain defilements, it's a Buddhist term, and in this case, kind of the view of self, so that remained, but the actual experience of zero, at that point, that was just a moment. Well, we were in the green room before this. We were having dinner, and you were eyeing my sandwich greedily, and... <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me like it didn't happen, because it did happen. <laughs> so it's not all uprooted. No. <laughs> so just to, to give a sense of the, the arc of awakening. <laughs> so that first stage, the, the two big ones that are uprooted is the view of self or the belief in self for just the reasons that I've described. And the second thing that's uprooted is doubt about that because you've just experienced. It's like, if you put your hand in fire, you no longer have any doubt that the fire is going to burn, right? because you just know from experience. So the doubt about the path or about these teachings, that was uprooted. But what remains is desire, aversion, restlessness, Oh, this is interesting. One of the last defilements, one of the last to be uprooted, it's at the final stage of awakening, is 
The English translation of the Pali is conceit. The Pali word is mana, M-A-N-A. But conceit has a very specific meaning in the Buddhist psychology. It's really any sense of I am. And it could be in comparison, I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, I'm the same as you. It could be over time, I was this in the past, I am this now, I will be in the future. So all of that is included in conceit. So you might think, well, if the sense of self has been uprooted at the first stage, why is conceit not uprooted until the very last stage? And that's because that pattern, and it's incredibly deeply conditioned. I mean, we all... We all have this sense of I am in one way or another. This is it's almost hardwired in us. But after the first experience of selflessness, as the pattern of conceit keeps on arising, and it does, as I say, until one is fully enlightened, one understands the pattern of conceit as being selfless. Mm. It's still a pattern. The pattern is there and it's going to come up a lot. But we're not hooked into it in quite the same way because we realize, oh yeah, this is just a deeply conditioned habit of mind. So our relationship to it is very different. Uh, But it's still there and it still plays itself out. I'll I'll just share one conceit story. I want your sandwich. (laughs) That's not conceit, that's desire. Okay. <laughs> that's greed. <laughs> Feels like a mix. <laughs> There's okay. more uh, practice. Fair enough. <laughs> you imagine how fun meditation retreats are? <laughs> so, uh, out at our center uh, in Barry, this IMS, the retreat center, and then down the road is the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. So there's now a, a resident monk at what we call the study center. His name is Analio, German monk, very disciplined, just a super yogi. He's hardcore. And we were both doing a self-retreat. So he was down in his little cottage at the study center. I was doing a self-retreat in my house just up the road. But I knew he was sitting. So I was on a long self-retreat. I think it was I don't know, two or three months. And at a certain point, one afternoon, I was just frittering away some time. I don't even remember what I was doing, but I was just wasting some time. And then I had the thought, oh, I'll bet Analio's not wasting time. (laughs) You know, which I'm sure he wasn't. (laughs) And so I started to get down on myself. Oh, what kind of yogi are you? You know, you... But thanks to the many years of my practice, I was able to see it in a relatively short time. I mean, it it lasted long enough for me to feel the effect of self-judgment and getting a little down. But, I don't know, within 15 minutes or 20 minutes, I recognized, oh, that's just mana. That's just conceit. And as soon as I recognized it as being 
this impersonal, selfless habit, I no longer took the conceit personally. And the whole thing developed. So even though the pattern is so strong and it is going to come up a lot, when we see it with wisdom, we have a very different relationship to it. And there's just so much more ease in our lives because we don't get so caught in these self-judgments and self-assessment. For people who are new to all of this, you've talked a lot about the self being an illusion or the idea of not-self or selflessness. What does that actually mean? Does that mean we don't exist, we don't have to put our pants on? What, what does it mean? And sorry, let me add something on there. What's the relationship between that and unborn? Because as far as I know, we were born. It's always tricky when he asks two questions. Because the second one pushes out the first. <laughs> so let's start. What was the first one? <laughs> How do we, what does selflessness mean? Okay. So I'll just use an, an image, which may convey some of it. So self is a concept. It's a designation for a process. It's not something that exists in and of itself other than as a convenient designation. So, for example, you know, if you go and sit by the side of a river, river is a word, it's a concept, it's a designation for the flow of water. But river is not a thing independent of the flow of water. It's just a word that we're using to describe it. Self is a word that we're using to describe the flow of our mind-body process. There's nothing in this process which really lasts more than a moment. And one of the things we learn in meditation, one of the things that happens is a refinement of our perception of change. So I, I know we've spoken about this. There's a, a little phrase I use in meditation describing, in a way, the, the unfolding. I talk of NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, and when we're starting, our noticings per minute are pretty low. But as we refine the mindfulness and the concentration gets stronger, the NPMs go way, way up. So just as an example, when people start meditating and the common you know, object of meditation is feeling the breath. Okay, so we're aware of the in-breath and the out-breath. Okay, so I notice the in, notice the out. So that's two noticings, however many breaths we take in a minute. But as the mindfulness gets stronger, we see that the in-breath is not one thing. The in-breath is a flow of more microscopic sensations that we can be aware of. So the breath is... So there's so much happening within a breath or within a step or within the sensations of our body. It's in a state of constant flow, constant change. 
it would be awkward to have to communicate with others. Oh, this flow of the mind-body process is going to the movies. It's much easier to say, I'm going to the movies. <laughs> you know, so we use I and me and self and all the conventional language. It's not that we should stop using it. But it's to realize that they are concepts, the designations pointing to something. And in meditation, we discover what it is that they're pointing to rather than reifying the concept as being something in and of itself. Got it? Is there going to be a quiz? <laughs> You've heard this before. <laughs> Let me see if I can um, take what you just said and build a bridge to the unborn. This might go not for go well. Okay. We walk around with this idea of a solid sense of self. It's me, separate from the universe, peering out fretfully from behind my eye sockets if I have sight. Uh, but actually, if you heighten or, or um, hone your inner microscope, you can see that this solid movie really is 24 frames per second probably many more frames per second of sensation in the knee, crazy thought, thing you're seeing, random sound you just heard. You can really break through this movie and see that it's actually an illusion. On one level, it's real, the movie's real, but on a, another level, it's actually just right. thing after thing after thing flowing. And these are conditions. These are causes and conditions, and they're constantly swarming into the next thing. Uh, all, you might think some thought you just had is totally original, but it's the it's the accumulation of all of the thoughts that preceded it. It's, it's your childhood, it's your ancestors, it's the culture. All of these causes and conditions constantly. We're always on the on the on the crest of a wave of causes and conditions, and that gets to the unborn. Zero is the unconditioned. It's out of this cycle. All right, that's all I have to say. Is that roughly yeah, no, correct? But- you did good. <laughs> A round of applause for Dan. <laughs> We're done here, actually. <laughs> Drive safely. Yes, and so to build on mm-hmm. that very clear summary. <laughs> so if you remember, just at the beginning of the evening, talked about another meaning of Nibbana or Nirvana. Beside the unborn, it was the mind free of greed and hatred and delusion. There's a spectrum. It can be momentary, where we have moments of that. And there is actually a phrase within the Buddhist tradition of momentary nibbana. So it's not that experience of zero but it is the experience of the mind for those moments not conditioned by wanting or aversion, you know, or delusion, ignorance. And it's interesting, in ancient India, they used the term Nibbana colloquially to refer to cooked rice that had cooled down. So they referred to the cooled down rice as having nibbana 
right? And I really love that because in a way it's pointing, yes, when our mind cools down, because these forces in our minds that create so much suffering and stress for ourselves, you know, of grasping and wanting and clinging and not liking and aversion and just all the stuff of our lives, it's a kind of burning. It's suffering in one way or another. And so when that cools down and we have moments where the mind has cooled down and it's free from that, so we could call that a momentary nibbana. I mentioned that the first stage of awakening is called stream entry. There's a stage before that which is called little stream enterer. (laughs) So it's not quite the full-blown thing. But there is a stage in practice, again, when... And this is more toward the beginning. This is not some super far-off attainment or realization. But it's a stage that, that generally comes when we're doing periods of intensive practice where the mind, the, the NPMs are so high that we're seeing the extremely rapid arising and passing away of phenomena. It just becomes crystal clear. And at that stage of practice, the mind does feel crystalline. It's just, it's super clear and alert and aware in the experience of that rapid rising and passing. And it's called pseudo-nirvana in the text because often people will take it to be it's, it's so extraordinary. It's, I don't know, one image that comes to mind when I think of what it feels like when one's mind opens to that level of perception, refined perception. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the first person who looked through a microscope? It must have been extraordinary. You know, to go from the conventional view of the world looking through a microscope and seeing a completely different reality. It's like another world appears. It must have been an extraordinary moment. And in science, there are probably many of those kinds of moments. But meditation, that's what it does for us. It's like we're focusing the microscope of our minds into this mind-body process. And at first, it's just the conventional, oh, my knee hurts or my whatever. You know, it's the more conventional understanding. But at this stage, all of that disappears. And it's just this rapid, rapid arising and passing of phenomena. That's what's called little stream enterer, because it's already moved us away from the reification of the self, you know, as being this somehow solid being here. And we're really seeing, we're seeing what it is in actuality that we're calling self. And so we begin to see that the word self is a designation for this process. Coming up, Joseph talks about whether Nibbana is available for regular people and whether you can have a successful meditation practice if you don't care about Nibbana at all. 
And he talks about some practices we can all do on a daily or semi-daily basis that might give us a glimpse of temporary Nibbana. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. I don't know if what I'm going to say now just qualifies as little stream entry or pseudo nirvana or whatever, but I've had maybe two experiences on long retreat where just all gets really fast and thrilling. And I made a big deal out of it in a book I wrote. And um, Joseph was teaching the retreat I was on where I had this experience and then bragged about it in a book. And um, a couple of years later, he was teaching a retreat at the same center on the West Coast. And he sent me an email. He said, I'm at the site of your great enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised they haven't put up a plaque. (laughs) (laughs) It's just constantly trying to kill my ego. Yeah, This is what a good teacher does. But it's okay, we all do it. Yeah. (laughs) So. (laughs) So these experiences, they sound incredible. The experience of zero... The fact that you can, and and then the further you go, that in the Theravadan school in which you've done a lot of practice, this this idea that you have the first experience of Nibbana and that's called stream entry, and then the second is called once returner, and the third is called non-returner, and then the fourth is what's called an arhat, somebody who's fully enlightened. It sounds like something out of Dungeons and Dragons, (laughs) but it's, this is the map, and it's very attractive to anybody who has any sense of what it's like to suffer as a human being. And I don't mean big suffering, innards pecked out by crows. I mean like just the daily wanting, not wanting, judging, et cetera, et cetera, of life. But are these experiences, even stream entry, is something like that available to regular people who are not going to dedicate their whole lives to practice the way you have? Yes, Certainly, the experiences I've just described, you know, whether it's the momentary nibbana of just the mind cooled, like the rice cooled, that we, we, we've all had that experience. You know, we may not have paid attention to it, and that would be an interesting thing 
just an exercise to do, you know, just as you're going through the day to see if you can notice the difference of when your mind is caught up in some whatever. <laughs> we get caught up in a lot of different things of plans and, you know, work stuff, family stuff. And just to, if you can remember, to just watch the oscillations between times when the mind is caught up and agitated in one way or another, and then there will be times when the mind is cool. You know, there was one Thai teacher, his name was uh, monk Ajahn Buddhadasa. He, he talked a lot about this momentary Nibbana. He said, if it weren't for that, we couldn't survive. If the mind were always in a state of excitation or agitation, it would be unbearable. But all of us have these times, these moments, where the mind is peaceful. It is cooled out. So this is just in a very ordinary way. This does not take any particular meditative skill. But it takes an interest in watching one's mind. Just this is a little digression. Uh, when I first went, after the peace card, I came back to the States, and I, and I wanted to continue practice. I tried to do it by myself. I realized I needed a teacher. So I went back to Asia, and I stopped in India to try to find a teacher. Ended up in Bodh Gaya, which is the small town, but it's where the Buddha was enlightened. So it's an important spiritual place. And my first teacher was there. His name was Munindraji. And he said something just when I first met him, which completely hooked me. It really set me on this particular path. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. There was nothing to join, there was no ritual, there was no ceremony. And the common sense of that statement, <laughs> if you want to understand the mind, and you don't have to sit down, you could be standing, or you could be lying down, but basically, observe it. Because how else could we understand our minds? It seems so obvious that that is the way. And then, of course, it's learning a method we're doing it. But what I'm suggesting now is really a step that everybody can take if they're interested in understanding themselves in their mind. Just in going through the day, just keep an eye out. Oh, agitated, upset. Oh, peaceful. So just that would be very revealing of the flavor of Nibbana, the cooled outness. And then in meditation practice, just what we discussed, the increasing the NPMs and the little stream enterer, all of that is well within just ordinary people's capacity who are dedicated to the practice, but who have not become monks and nuns and dedicated their whole life to it, but are practicing, you know, and are committed to the practice. And then even through the stage of stream entry, that, that is well within the capacity of many people. 
who are dedicated to the practice. To talk about full enlightenment, that might take a little more. You know? But from the beginning, even from that stage of little stream enter, it's like we're on the path. And as we said earlier, time is not a factor. Mm. If we're on the path and we keep walking, we'll inevitably fulfill our aspiration. Maybe not in this lifetime. Maybe not in, right, no, exactly. It might not be, in the, you know, in the Buddhist understanding, uh, rebirth is a part of the teachings. And again, this is one thing also we don't talk so much about because for most people it's outside the realm of their direct experience and it's not necessary to believe it in order to walk the path. But it's definitely part of the teachings. And there are people through their meditation who actually can access it. But to be clear, you can have a successful meditation practice if you don't give a shit about Nibbana. You're just like trying to be less of an asshole to yourself and others and your life is better. You're noticing the smell of coffee and you're seeing things more vividly. That's all on offer to anybody who wants to do this practice, Nibbana or not. Correct. (laughs) However, (laughs) sort of just as a kind of incentive... So in the teachings, the Buddha talked about seven different kinds of increasing levels of happiness. And a lot of them start with the kinds we're familiar with, just the happiness of sense pleasures, the coffee, the croissant, just the ordinary pleasures of our lives is a kind of happiness. It's not an ultimate kind of happiness, but it does give us pleasure, and so we recognize that. And then there's the happiness of concentration. When the mind is deeply concentrated, that is a happiness that is much more fulfilling than a happiness, the momentary happiness of sense pleasures. And that's why people can sit for hours, people who are well-developed in this, they can sit for hours and feeling completely at ease because the mind as a function of the concentration in their minds. So that's another kind of happiness. There's the happiness of insight. So the Buddha laid out all these different increasingly sublime levels of happiness. But this is where Munindra, he hooked me with this one. He said, if you aim for the highest, if you aim for Nibbana, all the rest will come along the way. So, "Mm, that's a good deal. (laughs) You know, and so we're aiming for complete liberation or complete awakening, but we don't have to wait until that happens. We can be experiencing increasing levels of happiness in our lives on more and more refined levels all along the way. In a way, it's not giving anything up except those forces in the mind that cause suffering. I don't know exactly how this is related, but maybe it's related a little bit. So just after 9-11, I was teaching a course just outside of New York. And part of the retreats 
generally, in addition to the Vipassana inside practice, mindfulness practice, we also teach loving kindness, which is its own meditation practice. And in that practice, we start you know, sending loving wishes to ourselves and then benefactors and friends and neutral person and difficult people and then all beings. So may all beings be happy. And we do that as a meditation practice intensively to develop that feeling. Well, I was teaching this, again, it was just like some weeks after 9-11, and we got to that category, in classical terms, it's called the enemy. We've modified it, the difficult person. But anyways, and there were people, there were a lot of New Yorkers there, and they said, there is no way that I can send meta to these people who flew into the towers. I was, it was incomprehensible to, may you be happy. That, so that really made me reflect because the Buddhist teaching talks about the measureless quality of loving-kindness, that it includes every being. But I could totally understand where those people were coming from. So it made me reflect, well, how does metta apply here in this kind of situation? It took me a little while to, to investigate in my own mind. And I realized there was a way but it was finding the appropriate language. So, for example, may you be happy did not cut it. But may you be free of hatred. May you be free of enmity. Is there anybody that we would exclude from that wish? I don't think so. Because it's exactly those forces in the mind which cause all of that harm, all of that suffering. And so the point is that it's these qualities in the mind of intense greed or hatred or enmity or fear or whatever it is. It's just another word for suffering. Suffering for oneself, suffering for others. So when we see that, the letting go of these qualities is really the letting go of suffering. And we could wish, may everyone be free of hatred. So I think that there really is a way to understand the universality of these teachings, but we have to find the appropriate language to express it that makes sense in particular situations. What are the practices we can do on a daily or semi-daily basis that might give us a glimpse of temporary... Nibbana. Okay. So there's one teaching in the text. It's one line that when people would hear it, just that one line, there were many stories of people getting enlightened by hearing it. And other people who got enlightened would use this line as an expression of their enlightenment. This is your chance. (laughs) It's so simple that 
we don't give it its due. So the one line that, that comes up a lot in the text, whatever has the nature to arise, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So what has the nature to arise? Everything. Absolutely everything that we experience is arising and then passing away. The implications of that are enormous, and that could be another whole evening, just unpacking what that one line means. But I was sitting on retreat, and just kind of spontaneously that thought came to mind, that line, oh, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. But I was sitting in the flow of the changing phenomena. So it's as if that line dropped into the midst of that experience of things arising and passing. Oh, so whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And then my mind did one further thing that was so revealing. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And so this is in the context of meditation. Therefore, there's nothing to want. Because whatever it is that I might want is going to also pass away. And in meditation, very often there is a wanting of something. It's like a leaning into the next moment. We're here, but we're, we're here in order for this. In order for this. So just that tag, therefore there's nothing to want, in that moment, I could feel my mind drop back from any wanting. And then to become aware of the experience of the non-wanting mind. To actually have the experience of the mind that is not wanting anything. That is a taste. That is really... It's a taste, it's a glimpse of that freedom. So that's one. Another, just in recent years, I've just been exploring and playing in very kind of modest way, just writing some poetry, which I'd done really in my 20s, but had not for many, many years. And it's been great, it's been a great creative expression, and really, for me, very meditative. So I was just doing walking meditation on retreat, and this haiku-like poem came to mind expressive of an experience I was having in that moment. But it, it really points to a really interesting space. So this is, this is the short haiku. Bird song in the empty sky of my mind. So I was just walking in meditation. Normally, you know, we hear the song of a bird and we're here and the bird is there and we're hearing the song. So there's that basic separation and duality in the way we are experiencing it. But in that moment, it was not bird there and me here. 
this bird song in the empty space of my mind and then realizing everything is a bird song. Everything is arising in the empty space of our mind. And when we just play with that, it collapses that sense of separation. So that's another glimpse of selflessness. There's no one there. It's just, just that. Can I add two more practices that I, I got from uh, you yeah, on this sure. that I found helpful? One is, uh, and, I, and this is just, I'm repeating his, uh, you're getting this from a good source via me. <laughs> um, when you notice in your mind, in your free range living, that you want something, notice that you want something, stay with it, and then notice that desire will pass. The moment after the desire has passed, and this will all happen pretty quickly, that's a temporary nibbana. It's gone. It's a relief. This is going to happen to you a million times between now and when you go to bed. So it's not an esoteric uh, experience. You can look out for it, and that moment after the desire has arisen and you let it go is pretty delicious. The second, and this related to the bird song in the empty sky of your mind, which for some of us might sound a little tricky to grok, but another related, uh, I know, I know. <laughs> this is when the student becomes the master. Um, <laughs> another related technique that I'm also stealing from Joseph that I found very helpful that really allowed me to understand this idea of an object arising in the empty sky of one's mind is to notice whatever you're noticing right now it might be you're seeing things, hearing things, feeling your body in the chair. And then to ask yourself, who is knowing this? This is being known by what? And then you can ask yourself a supplemental question is, who's asking this question? <laughs> and right there, and again, this is all coming from Joseph, so you can actually trust it. Um, Right there, you're, you're just knocking on the door of the great mystery of consciousness. We know that we know stuff, but we don't know how or who. And that is really, really interesting. Yeah. And it's all temporary Nibbana. So I'll just... You were supposed uh, to say, good job, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> good job, Dan. <laughs> so just, just to add one little piece to that. They're going to put I, a those... plaque up here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Those have been really helpful for me as well. Just, uh, just a slight little furtherance, which I found uh, just a way of expressing it. So, for example, if you're sitting, whether it's in meditation or not, you know, it could be any time, but you're hearing sounds, the formulation that I have found really helpful, which prompts the investigation is just the question, as you're hearing things, to ask the question, can I find what's knowing the sound? So you don't have a preconception. You're, you're really legitimately asking the question and having interest. You're hearing sound, so you know you're hearing it, like now. So we're hearing the sound. Can you find what is knowing it? And there are two teachings here on this theme, which I found really helpful. 
so on the Tibetan teaching, it says when you look for the mind, you can't find it, and the not finding is the finding. Like that's what's to be understood, that it's not findable, and yet the knowing is happening. So this is really the great mystery of consciousness. It can't be found, and yet it's knowing. And so one phrase that a Tibetan teacher used was, the cognizing power of emptiness. You know, I kind of love that phrase. So in, this, in alignment with this, there's a Zen story, which, very brief, which points to the same thing, but has been of tremendous uh, value for me just in, in my life. So Bodhidharma was the great figure, Indian master who brought Buddhism from India to China. And there are a lot of legends about Bodhidharma sitting in a cave for nine years and all of that. So some guy comes to see him who became his first disciple, very upset, very distressed, in a lot of suffering. And at first, Bodhidharma says he doesn't want to bother with him. But the guy's insistent, and so finally Bodhidharma comes out of his cave, and the guy says, I'm in so much suffering, I'm in so much distress, please pacify my mind. So Bodhidharma says, show me your mind, and I'll pacify it. And the guy says, I've looked for it everywhere and can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, already pacified. First, before I go on, I want to congratulate you all, because I think this is the first time that I have told that story where people actually took that in and didn't laugh at the kind of witticism of it. Because almost always I tell the story and people will kind of laugh because it's kind of a funny, funny story. So I'm really impressed. <laughs> I mean, it really felt like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you. But, but because it really is profound. To, to realize that in the unfindability, when we're recognizing that, it is already pacified, that our mind is distressed by all the stuff, the content of the mind, but we're not connected to the nature of the knowing mind itself. Right? And so we're getting seduced by the content, the story, the film on the screen, and not seeing the nature of awareness and the unfindability of it. So now, you know, just caught up in whatever problems or difficulties or frustrations, whatever is going on in my life, and I can be going for a walk and maybe mulling something over and feeling a little uh, stress of one kind or another. And because I know the story so well, I, I, I don't need to go through the whole sequence. All I have to do is, oh, already pacified. You know, it just reminds me, oh, looking for the mind, there's nothing to find. Already pacified. And in that moment, 
the stress is all gone. It's, it, it's really like magic because we're extricating ourselves from our entanglement with the story. And for the most part, we're living in the story of our lives and not in the basic process of the elements of our lives, of the body, of the mind, the heart. When I proposed initially that we do an evening on Nirvana, you were pretty reluctant. Uh, we're approaching the end of that evening. Are you okay? And um, <laughs> is there anything I should have asked that I didn't ask? How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. It's really how they're feeling. <laughs> 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 So that was not a call for that, by the way, but it's good to... <laughs> Only but, one of us is needy. <laughs> but it, this was kind of an experiment because, you know, when Dan first approached me and I thought, you know, a public talk and I didn't know who was going to be coming and talking about Nibbana and Nirvana, you know, people can be even interested in this. But the discussion felt great to me. And so it could be that this... Maybe we'll set an example for how we can talk about it more often, if it's helpful. That or people who listen to the show are really fucking weird. <laughs> There's that, too. <laughs> Joseph, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. This was great. Thanks again to Joseph for participating in this experiment with us and for staying up way past his bedtime. Uh, always great to see Joseph. Thanks as well to Clay Fernald and the rest of the staff and crew of the Arts at the Armory venue, Patrick Hanlon and his team at Revival House Records, and to everybody who showed up in the audience. Thank you. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Special shout out to Marissa, who did a ton of work to bring this episode into being. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. Shout out to Kevin as well. He was right there on the scene, making sure our audio and video all worked out well. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing. And Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts, our fearless leader. Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote our theme. We love that theme and I love everything Islands does. And we'll see you right back here on Friday for something from the vault. We're going to talk about a more relaxed way to meditate with one of my favorite teachers, somebody who's been very influential for me, Alexis Santos. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. 
Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.